Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for episode two in this new series, shining the spotlight on all things entrepreneurial. In the spirit of the Voom competition, we're talking to emerging entrepreneurs and bona fide business experts to find out what it takes to be at the top of the game. With stories, top tips and advice, whether you're just starting out or you're ready to grow, this is for you. In this episode, we're focusing on an industry that, whilst only around a decade old, is now worth over 50 billion US dollars in revenue worldwide, a figure expected to be more than double by 2020. And if you have a smartphone or a tablet, it's more than likely that you've been contributing to those numbers. I am, of course, talking about the ever-growing world of mobile apps. Apps come in all shapes and sizes. Some are designed for pure fun, whilst others solve problems in our day-to-day lives by connecting the on and offline worlds. Whether you're gaming, dating, working or discovering new music, the likelihood is that you've probably used an app to help you along the way. Later in this episode, we'll be hearing from one of the winners of last year's Voom competition, Anthony Eskenazi, whose ingenious app Just Park is solving problems for drivers across the UK. But for the main part of today's conversation, I'm joined by two people whose passion for music and apps lies at the core of their businesses. Joining me in our studio in London is Russ Tannen. Russ is head of music at DICE, a revolutionary ticketing service where live music fans can buy face value entrance to gigs, clubs and festivals without paying booking fees and without the hassle of printing. It's all from your smartphone. And in their inaugural year, The Guardian named them amongst the best iPhone apps of 2014 and last year year they were listed in Apple's best of 2015. Hello to you Russ. Hi thanks for having me. And on the line from San Diego I'm really pleased to welcome an entrepreneur and trailblazer. He was a founder of one of the first apps to be included in the Apple App Store when it launched back in 2008 and a service that I and around 500 million others use almost daily. Welcome to Chris Barton, original founder and now a director on the board of Shazam. Hello, Chris. Hello, and thank you for having me. Now, there will be people who perhaps have been living under a rock who don't know what Shazam is. Can you sum it up in one line? Uh, Yeah, so if you happen to be under a rock and you hear a song that you like playing in the background, um, you can just pull out your phone 
uh, push a button and it instantly identifies the song, um, even right through rocks if the music's loud enough. Now, where does the name Shazam come from? Because I seem to have a memory of a cartoon where the word Shazam was there. Uh, yeah, so there was a comic series that was quite famous by Marvel Comics called Shazam about a, a little kid named Billy Babson. Um, and he would say the word Shazam and a lightning bolt would come from the sky and turn him into a superhero. Um, and I think that the word has been used both in that comic series and, and in other instances, essentially, to conjure magic. So it's a, a word you'd say when you want to conjure magical things. So your conjuring of magical things is to give us the name of a track or a piece of music that we are just desperate to understand. Yes, exactly. It's a, we believe it's a magical experience for users. Now, to drive home how big the potential of the apps market is, last year alone there were 1 billion smartphones sold worldwide. But Chris, you launched Shazam in 1999. Phones weren't really that smart then, were they? In fact, a lot of them were horrible clunky bricks that made mainly just calls. So what was Shazam like then? Yeah, so you're correct that it was very late 1999 that we came up with the idea for Shazam and I think launched it around 2002, starting in the UK. Uh, And when we launched it, as you mentioned, the only thing you could really do with mobile phones was make phone calls and send text messages. And so the way that you use Shazam at at our launch uh, was that you would dial a phone number. It was actually a four-digit phone number much like we might dial 192 for directory inquiries. And uh, you would initiate a phone call, and we would say, hold your phone to the music. And then we would record about 15 seconds of sound. We would end the call, and then we would send you a text message with the name of the song. See, I remember that. Now, in a way, you predicted the direction that smartphones were going before it happened, didn't you? I mean, I think when we came up with the idea for Shazam, we thought the world is getting mobile phones at an incredible rate, and they're carrying them everywhere they go. And wouldn't it be great if you could do things with mobile phones other than to make calls or send text messages? And so, yeah, we were, we were trying to ride on that curve of adoption of this new device. But how did you know that that's something that people really would use and want? Well, you never really know as an entrepreneur, um, but it was a gut instinct. And when you described it to people, it usually resonated with them. People said they would usually, if they liked music, often relate to that problem of hearing music occasionally that that they liked but didn't know what it was. Uh, And so it was literally that sort of gut instinct validation that we went with. But there were definitely question marks as to whether it was just a novelty or an ongoing issue for users. Russ, Dice was born more recently, and it went straight into a huge sea of apps in a sense. So what have you and the team done to make it stand out from the crowd? I think our background's in the music industry, and we felt there was a lot of issues with ticketing, the way it was working. Um, We were working in management specifically, and for our artists, we were putting shows on sale, and we were seeing tickets go on sale for much higher than the price that we wanted them to be. So specifically in the States, it might be a $20 ticket that was getting sold for $30. What we wanted to do from the outset to be different was to get rid of the booking fee, which was the fee that was making the tickets be so much more expensive. And that was our first point of difference. 
And one of the things about being mobile is that we could actually get rid of some of the other costs involved, um, some of the things that the booking fee normally traditionally covers, like postage or anything like that. So by being mobile, by having the ticket within the app, um, we could get rid of some of those costs and actually get to a point where we didn't have to charge any fees at all. But you've also got a sense of curation through the app, haven't you? Because it's more than just tickets. Your listings are curated. So it's as much about music discovery, isn't it? So is curation the key to shining in in what could be an overcrowded market, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. From day one, we really said we didn't want to sell tickets to every show. We just wanted to sell tickets to the very best um, live music events and club nights happening in your city. Just really legitimate, great up, upcoming music and, and really established acts as well. So obviously a huge part of making a successful app relies on designing a really flawless user experience and some apps simply depend on good artwork and a functional layout to get their ideas across. Others are completely redefining areas of technology and coding to achieve new things. So Chris, how does Shazam work? And when you first rent up the idea, how confident were you that it would actually work? Well, actually, when we came up with the idea, we didn't know how it would work. And um, we actually began to do some research and try to identify people that might know how to build such a technology. Uh, They were typically PhDs in audio signal processing from institutions that focus in this area, such as MIT Media Lab and Stanford. Uh, And we spoke to a bunch of them, and they actually all told us that, that it wasn't possible what we were trying to do. There, there was music recognition, but there was no music recognition technology that would work with the noise that was characteristic of identifying a song over a mobile phone, background noise, and, and combined with the scale of the number of songs you'd have to identify. So, Most people would give up at that point, wouldn't they? Well, it would, it would be a bad decision if they did, because uh, we just persisted. And um, we were very determined that this should be feasible. And uh, we finally found a professor at Stanford who, although he didn't know how to do it, he felt like it could be feasible as well. And uh, working with him, we found our fourth co-founder, this sort of genius out of Stanford named Avery Wang, who had four degrees from Stanford in, in mathematics, statistics, electrical engineering, audio signal processing. And uh, he didn't know how to do it either. But after several months of trying, he, working with Julius, sort of cracked the code and figured out a way to identify music with background noise against a large-scale database of songs. And then how did you build the right team to put all these ideas together and create what's now an app? Well, it wasn't an app when we launched. It was you're talking about. Um, So the initial team that we hired was about 30 or 40 people. We built that by raising venture capital money, uh, $7.5 million of venture capital money from UK-based venture capital firms, including a fund that was... uh, 50% owned by the Virgin Media Group called Lynx Capital. And uh, we used that funding to hire an initial team, most of whom focused on nothing related to apps since we were launching based on this phone call-based experience. But we had to build what's called an IVR, Interactive Voice Response System, that would answer the calls. We had to build our own sort of Google-like search engine that was parallel processing Beowulf cluster of PCs that through essentially would run a search across all the fingerprints of the songs every time someone identified a song. We had to build uh, technologies that would create fingerprints of all the music from CDs and and then uh, sort of organize all the the metadata that described the names of the songs and artists and albums. Uh, So we had to build all those parts of the experience to launch it back then. So technologically, that was, there were a whole load of hurdles in a sense, weren't there? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. It was a very significant initiative and a lot of venture capital money that we had to invest to to get this off the ground. So apart from finding great venture capitalists and being persistent, any tips to people going through this initial process? Gosh, I mean, I think that, you know, one is that in order to be able to be so persistent, which is required to be successful, you need to be passionate about it. Um, So the first question is to make sure, are you really passionate about the problem you're trying to solve? The second is to surround yourself by really talented people. So all those people, those first hires and partners and so on and co-founders all need to be people that you really think are going to be equally devoted and talented people that will to help realize the dream. And then, you know, finally, I think a lot of persistence and luck. Well, Russ... Have you followed all those rules so far at Dice? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> have you? What's, so. What sort of hurdles have you faced? Because you're two years in now, really, aren't you? Yeah, just over 18 months. Um, I'm sure it's the same for, for lots of, of small startups. So it's hiring. We're at a size where we're at sort of 40 people now. So you start to think about, like, how do you create a company culture that you like? And, yeah, how do you attract the right talent as we grow bigger? Just thinking of it today, we've just moved into a temporary space office. We're having to move offices again because we've got too big again. And sort of all of that stuff's always going on. And then on the sort of technology side, it's you're always facing different roadblocks. So one of the things that we thought happens often with specifically ticketing companies when they launch and one of the things that knocks them out straight away as if they'll crash or something won't work. They'll get that big deal in to sell, you know, a large number of tickets and it just won't work on the day. So we're constantly improving the back-end infrastructure of the app so that, you know, when we do land one of those big deals, we can handle that really comfortably. Um, and, and the other big area for us in terms of technology is the access and making sure that it's not just buying the ticket, which is really smooth and really simple on the phone, but actually when you get to the venue, you can get in really easily and that's, yes, yeah, a big, big sort of hurdle for us. See, all those are fun- Functional things. When you just use the phrase company culture, that fascinates me because do you have a mission that comes from your emotional states that creates a company culture? I mean, what have you decided your company culture should be? Or is it something that evolves? I think it's something that evolves. Um, it's something that only recently we've sat down to actually start to define um, what are our beliefs, what are our values. I think when you're smaller than probably 40 people, it's probably too early to be doing that. It feels like the right sort of time. Um, and I think that's because you don't get to spend as much time one-on-one with new people that are coming in and you, you kind of want to have a bit of a guidelines of like, this, this, is, this is what we're about. Can I come to you, Chris, and ask you for your, I suppose, attitudes as a company? I think that Shazam is comparable to some of the, I'd like to think, some of the great sort of Silicon Valley or technology companies, although it's not a Silicon Valley technology company. I spent eight years working at Google and four years working at Dropbox, so I've certainly had a lot of opportunities to see what those cultures are like. But I would describe it as being full of people who are very passionate about building uh, great experiences by being very focused on the user and delighting them, much as it sounds like Russ is uh, with, with Dyson. I think that relentless focus on the user and creating delightful experiences, solving real problems as a foundational part of the kind of motivation for why everyone is at the company and what they're working on is really key. Shazam has a culture of sort of innovation and being creative, coming up with new ideas and always kind of aligning with this focus on creating magical experiences, which is really its foundation with the kind of Shazam concept and identifying music. And um, and it's a wonderful place. All the people that work there, I think, are, have that kind of wonderful energy that uh, comes along with kind of essentially a very creative environment. 
Do you have a sushi bar and serve chia seeds with your porridge like Google does, though? <laughs> That's coming in the future. Uh, but uh, I think you, you have to hit on the, the big cash-generating machine sometimes before uh, those things can make sense. Well, that ties in beautifully. I know that you, Chris, used venture capitalists in the UK. I just want to ask Russ now, how did you go about raising funds to launch Dice? Well, Initially, we did a joint venture with our now co-founders, who are the founders of a, a mobile product studio called Usti, who make the game Monument Valley, and they do lots of amazing stuff in mobile and, and apps specifically. And what that let us do is um, get some of their best people within the agency. They helped us develop the prototype and everything for when we first went out uh, to, to raise some funds. And we've done two seed rounds. I'm just about to announce uh, our next round. Um, and the first seed round is really important for us um, to get money not just from people in the tech space and from really from VCs. We were looking more at angel investors and we wanted to get a mix of people. So there's some people uh, from music industry, people with a more commercial background, founders of other businesses that have launched and become successful and had a real mix of people from the start. So after you've come up with a great idea and put in the work to develop the right technology and build your app, how do you then monetize. Chris, Shazam is a free app. Essentially, it's a service that answers the question, what music is this? So how do you turn a service like that, one with no physical end product other than knowledge, into a successful money-making business? That's a great question. You know, I think one thing that's really an interesting lesson in general for entrepreneurs is that we often think about innovation being something that you focus on technology, inventing new technologies. But I'm fascinated by the fact that you can also focus your energies of innovation on business models. And um, you can actually innovate and change and alter and optimize your business model over time. Shazam's actually gone through many iterations of business models. Uh, when it first started, Shazam had the business model of 192 directory inquiries, which meant that every time you used it, you paid a, f a small fee, 50 pence, by using Shazam on your phone, and you were only charged if it successfully identified the song using premium SMS. Later, Shazam evolved to subscription in the early form of apps before the iPhone, what were called Java and Brew apps, and it had a, a monthly subscription of around 3 or $4 a month, and you could use Shazam on an unlimited basis, charged to your mobile phone bill at a 3 or $4 a month. And then when the iPhone launched, finally, we had a situation where there was a mature digital music industry that Shazam could benefit from and could collaborate with and was uh, complementary to. Because keep in mind, when Shazam launched, iTunes and the iPod had not even launched and were not commercially available. So Shazam migrated to a business model that helped drive music sales and actually today drives over $300 million a year of digital downloads uh, as the number one affiliate for iTunes and also contributes to users discovering new music subscription services such as Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, Google Play Music, and so on. But now the final iteration, today's iteration for Shazam's business model is focused on, I like to think of as next generation of advertising. We have an initiative called Shazam for Brands, and what we enable advertisers to do is not only to place advertisements within the app, which is sort of the obvious, easy form of advertising, but to 
uh, connect with users and sort of bridge the gap between the offline world and the online world. So you could see a TV advertisement and you could just shazam it. And now you're instantly in a mobile experience related to the TV advertisement. You could do the same with a radio advertisement. You could do the same with a billboard advertisement, believe it or not, using beaconing technology. So Shazam is is now providing this sort of a fully integrated experience layered with all kinds of data and analytics of value to advertisers to create this connecting uh, experience for the offline and the online advertising worlds. So is beaconing technology, would I be able to hold up my iPhone, for example, to a tree? This is what somebody asked me today, whether this is what Shazam might be doing next or even doing now. And would that image be able to be recognized and would I get the knowledge about what that tree is? <laughs> no? Today, the trees, we haven't launched trees yet, but that's definitely <laughs> in the pipeline. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, we um, we do have Shazam Visual, where we use visual watermarks um, that can be placed right into the pictures and, and text that you see in any form of print, from magazines, newspapers, um, even you know the labels on a, a bottle. Um, in fact, we now have a campaign running with Coca Cola, where you can Shazam Coca Cola cans, uh, and uh, and you, that's using the camera and it's using visual watermarks and visual recognition to allow you to Shazam something that you can actually see. So that's using the camera. And beacons are not using the camera. Beacons are actually using sort of Bluetooth technologies to create little signals that can be recognized. So for example, walking in a retail store or maybe at a concert venue, you could Shazam and we'd instantly detect the beacon and and know where you are and provide a custom experience related to the venue that you're at. Which will tell me to buy a hot dog and a can of Coke, won't it? (laughs) Now, you, Russ, how have you structured your revenue stream? Because I would imagine that a lot of people are assuming that you basically sell me a gig ticket and then you take a cut. No, not at all. So at the moment, we're completely focused on growth. So we're just 18 months in. And although we're generating revenue from some areas, it's not our big focus right now. We've got lots of ideas. And I'm sure like Shazam will end up changing and it will evolve and um, we'll have a huge focus on that at some point. Right now, it's all about really getting a big market share in the UK. Um, we're running live at the moment at 5.6. We're about to launch all around the UK and um, really just getting a really, really good market share before we try and turn on any of those revenue generating streams. So where's your money coming from? Uh, it's, it's all from fundraising at the moment, yeah. And how hard was that fundraising? How um, hard is that fundraising? I think fundraising is um, really hard for Phil, who's our CEO. It's definitely a lot of energy and focus. But, you know, the more we talk to different founders, and, and I'm sure Chris has experienced this as well, I think that um, it's just about getting through that and, and finding the right people to invest. And it's what enables us to create the things we're trying to create. And how do you get artists and promoters to come on board in the first place? I mean, are you constantly out there pitching? Yeah, so that's my role really specifically. And I think that it really helped us when we started out that we had a background in the music industry and it's quite a closed industry. And I think that um, being able to go into someone's office and it's not be for the first time and explain a new idea that you've had or um, involving a lot of people in the industry before we'd even launched and talking to them about the idea really helped us in terms of getting going from day one. And any favourite artists that you've managed to land then? 
we've worked with hundreds of artists. Um, I'm equally proud of some of the bigger artists that we've brought in. So we have sold large numbers of tickets to people like Disclosure and tickets for Adele and um, people like Justin Bieber even. But I'm really excited about and proud of the work we've done with new and developing artists. So it could be an amazing band like Whitney who have just come through this year who we've been doing a lot of work with uh, or an amazing band called Liss. Uh, there's a um, way of using Dice um, for, for new artists where we're sending out music to people where we're targeting specifically people that we think are going to be into new artists. They've never heard them before. They're, they're finding out about them through Dice. Then they're finding out about their first show through Dice. They're buying the ticket. They're going to the show. Then we're keeping them up to date with their video and then eventually their album launch and um, telling that whole story and creating that whole journey for them. And through the process of selling this new service, Dice, do you have any top tips for business owners pitching new ideas? I think getting really to the crux of the, the thing, getting that elevator, that one-line pitch that Chris nailed about Shazam earlier, mm. getting that really right, I think is key because I think if you go into an idea, you might have been thinking about it for a year and at all hours of the day, but if you can't nail it in sort of one sentence and just explain really what the, the problem is that you're solving, then I think that people switch off quite quickly. Well, someone else who knows all about pitching is Anthony Eskenazi, the founder of Just Park and winner in last year's Voom competition. Voom is an annual campaign run by Virgin Media Business that gives emerging companies the opportunity to win a share of £1 million in prizes, in addition to a wealth of business support. Anthony and Just Park pitched to Richard Branson and won support to help grow his business to the next level. Here's his story. My name is Anthony Eskenazi. I'm the founder and CEO of Just Park. Just Park is an app and website that helps drivers find convenient and affordable parking wherever they happen to be going. And we do this by allowing them to park on people's driveways, at hotels, at churches, at schools, um, but also if they want to, they can park with us at a, a major car park as well. So ultimately for us, it's about helping drivers make a much more informed decision uh, and helping them find parking close to wherever they're going. So I started Just Park in 2006. Um, we didn't actually launch our first iPhone app until it must have been 2010, 2011. Um, it's always great having a first mover advantage. And, you know, in 2006, we were probably the first company to do what we do. But... Of course, yes, you get the first mover advantage and therefore you can try and capture market share very quickly. But also you're then stuck also a legacy system. And so you want to build into new technologies and then you then got to transition your platform from being catered just for a, you know, a big screen size to a mobile device and offering potentially a subset of features as well. Transitioning to, to apps was very important. You know, parking is a ultimate mobile activity. Building out our mobile platforms on both, you know, iOS and Android it's allowed us to, I guess, attract a different market to, to Just Park. So it's not just the pre-planners, the people who are very organised, who are going to football stadiums or airports or another activity which more often than not you've planned days, weeks, even months in advance. But by building the app, we can capture the people who are not as organised, who are about to leave the house or have even arrived at their destination. They're like, I've been circling the block for four hours. <laughs> I need somewhere to park now and, and opening up a Just Park app and realising there's a space just next door. And so it's a completely different segment we've been able to target. And I guess when anyone's thinking about starting a company and what platforms to target, is it desktop, is it mobile web, is it native apps, or even Apple Watch or any of the other um, 
new platforms out there, then it's you know very much what is what is the use case, what is the persona, what is it to my typical customer, and really understanding that before you start building your product. I think any any entrepreneur listening to this, any business person, will know that running any business for ten years or even one or two years, um, there's so many ups and downs, especially when you're on your own like I was for the first sort of four or five years. Those downs are, are pretty bad, and perseverance is a really important quality for an entrepreneur. The only caveat, I guess, is don't persevere at something which you shouldn't. You need to know when it's time to move on, and that's not necessarily moving on from doing different business and, and packing it all in, but moving on to a new product or pivoting or, or just trying something slightly different from what you've been doing up until now. If I hadn't persevered, I would have packed this all in six, seven years ago. So I'm delighted I did. <laughs> so our boom story is quite funny, but it's also kind of accidental with a, with a happy ending. About two or three days before the first entries had to be in, so the closing date, I have myself and my colleague got an email saying, guys, you should really enter um, the grow category. There aren't that many companies in it, and I think you'd have a chance. And we look at it, and I'd, I had seen some ads around sort of promoting it, but I just, I guess I saw it as a startup competition. I didn't really see us as a startup anymore. We'd raised some VC money. We'd been going, you know, six, seven years, whatever. So we, I dismissed it. And I had a look at it and I thought, oh, the grow category, we fit that. We had a video already um, left over from our crowdfunding. So I thought, okay, yeah, we can do this. We can get it up and running pretty quickly. And we did. And then we realized, okay, we've got to get some votes. And we thought, okay, well, we've got, I don't know, three quarters of a million customers. We've got 2,500 shareholders from our crowdfunding round. We've got a few people who would vote for us. Um, and very quickly realized, you know, yeah, we're generating enough votes here to, to get to the next round. And we just thought this is, this is fun. And then we part got, had to go do a few interviews and we got to the semi-final and we had to do more voting. And then, yeah, we got enough votes to be in the top three of our group, which meant that we were guaranteed £100,000 in marketing spend as a prize. But we had a chance to go for the big quarter of a million pound top prize. I guess the day, the day started really nerve-wracking. <laughs> but, you know, pitching to all of them was, was great fun. A memorable experience. It went obviously very well. We won the top prize. And... The PR it generated was great. The extra credibility it brings was fantastic. Uh, it was great for recruitment, so people saw us as an exciting company. And obviously the, the money, the marketing budget um, has and will allow us to do some, some really interesting things. And as the competition suggests, it will hopefully let us, let us go boom. <laughs>
Uh, Russ, you are a music nerd or a neek, a cross between a nerd and a geek. Do you like that word? Um, that's your living. So you must be pretty proud of scoping out new bands that people have never heard of. Do you ever Shazam things in the deliberate hope that they'll be unshazamable? Have you ever played that game? I definitely Shazam a lot, but I'm unaware of that game where you're trying to Shazam <laughs> things that haven't been, I don't know what the word for when an artist is uploaded to Shazam. But What I'm, is the word, Chris, when you're uploaded to Shazam? I guess you're Shazamable. Yeah. Yes. Um, Russ, what are DICE's business goals in terms of growth? Right now we're focused on the UK, so we're about to launch UK-wide and we're trying to get to a point where we have really, really strong um, market share for small, medium and, and large uh, events happening around the country. And then later in the year we're going to be looking at our first sort of international markets. And Chris, based on your experience at Shazam, what advice would you give to the DICE team and indeed any company in the app space who are looking to grow? That's a great question. I mean, I think that the greatest challenge for almost every app, as you mentioned earlier, is the sea of apps out there. And uh, getting sort of mind share above that sea of apps is going to be the greatest challenge. And typically is the case that it's never going to make economic sense to spend money on marketing uh, to try to achieve that mind share. Uh, and so you ultimately have to win that through word of mouth, unless you have sort of an inherent virality uh, to your app, which is typically not achieved by by most apps, except for Facebook and Twitter and so on. So fueling that word of mouth really comes from delighting users uh, and delighting users to such an extent that when they're out and about with their friends and possibly at a pub quiz having beers, they'll say, hey, there's this great app you really have to check out called Dice. Um, and it sounds, you know, it sounds like that's really what they're focused on is creating delightful experiences, eliminating that pain of that booking fees and, and you know, saving money is always a very compelling thing for people um, and just being relentlessly focused on delighting users. And from a development point of view, we already know Shazam started off as one thing and has just grown and grown and shifted and morphed. But how much time, effort and money goes into updating your app to keep up with the market, to keep up with the new phones and operating systems that are being released? Yeah, I mean, we focus a lot of energy on that. Uh, we have a big team of engineers uh, that are always building features that will stay up to date with the latest platform releases by typically the most important players, which are Google for the Google Play App Store and, and Apple for the iOS App Store. And then we're always trying to build better and better experiences for users so that we can provide them with things that they can do after they identify songs or associated with identifying songs that will be really valuable to them. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically where most of our energies uh, are focused. I don't know whether either of you would like to ask each other questions. Maybe I'll flip it around because everybody will be expecting me to say, Russ, would you like to ask the business genius a question? But Chris, have you got a question for Russ? Uh, yeah, let's see. So I actually think, Russ, you're, you're really focused on a, a really great area because the, I mean, it's, it's a well-known fact that the ticketing uh, segment of the music industry is the most lucrative aspect of music now for everyone, particularly for the artists. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's also the fastest growing. So it's a great segment to focus on. And it's something that where consumers are really willing to pay for music-related experiences. So I guess my question is, you know, how do you think you'll be able to uh, scale this benefit of having a no-booking fee? Is that something that you think you'll be able to scale to all artists? Or do you think there's major roadblocks that will, will get in your way? 
I think when we first started to think about Dice, we were never really thinking about getting rid of the booking fee altogether. And I remember when we started to talk about it in the office and it was like it made the way that we looked at the whole business model completely changed in our minds. And, and I can see it sort of starting to happen now, the more and more um, artists and promoters that we work with, because as soon as you take that sort of easy cut of money away, um, it makes you think a lot more creatively about how to generate a lot more money for the music industry. So I think by that point, we should have lots of other ways where we're generating lots more money for, for artists um, that where the booking fee would just wouldn't, we wouldn't need to have a booking fee at all. Now, Ross, have you got a question for Chris? Yeah, so Chris, one of my uh, favourite books is uh, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I don't know if you've read that. I have, yeah. yeah. I, I love that book. Yeah, me too. And what I loved about that book is it had the sort of lessons that it taught me are sort of those extreme HR sort of problems. I wondered if you had a sort of really, really difficult problem that you've had to deal with um, in, your, in your time as Shazam. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, Shazam has been a very long road. I, I would basically say that in order for a company to function, you need to have cash to pay everyone. And in order to have cash to pay everyone, as you know, that cash has to come from one of two sources, either revenue or from funding. And um, I would say that during the period from when we launched the business in 2002 um, until when we sort of hit a, a, a rocket ship uh, of growth when the iPhone App Store launched in 2008, so that six-year period, there was a lack of both revenue and funding. And so we, you could describe the business as being near death for a six-year period mm-hmm. um, and surviving through that near-death experience was definitely something that required a lot of creative thinking and anything to sort of somehow find some bit of money that would help keep the company going. Uh, so I would say that, yeah, that, that's probably one of the biggest um, challenges that we faced during the Shazam years. Well, Did that help you? Yeah, I hope Maybe you we need don't an find HR ourselves app. in that. I think six, <laughs> six years of that sounds like a very long time. That's nearly it for this episode, but I've got a few quick fire questions to close the podcast. Chris, where do you think the app industry is headed? Do you think there are untapped areas? If so, what are they? Yeah, I think um, I share the excitement with some investors. In fact, I just read an article that uh, Steve Case, the founder of uh, AOL, is actually focused on this area, that one of the next waves for entrepreneurs will be in the real world. And uh, we both know, you know, we all know that Uber is one great example of of building a very successful business that connects an app with essentially the real world. Um, One category of the real world happens to be this on-demand economy, which is what Uber is uh, focused on. But I actually believe that there will be many successful mobile app companies that are solving real world problems and connecting you with a with a real world experience of some type. And it could span across healthcare, um, you know, th- things related to your automobile, your house, you know, all the sort of important things in our lives. Um, but um, building those businesses, businesses will not be easy because it won't be as simple as just building a mobile app and trying to get a lot of users. Uh, you'll have to really get um, uh, your, your hands dirty and build a, a real nuts and bolts business uh, behind that app. Question for both of you. Russ, you first. What are the apps that you use to help productivity in your office? I think it's a very uh, popular one at the moment is Slack. 
So um, that from from the day that we started to use it and, and took on board as a company completely changed the way that we communicated internally. Um, definitely cut down email a lot for anyone that didn't need to email people externally at all. So some people, and I know a lot of people on the product team don't check their email at all. Um, it's completely 100% using using Slack and I guess that instant messenger. And, um, and Chris, for you, an app that you or any of your team use to help productivity in your office? I've got some strong bias uh, having spent over four years at Dropbox, but definitely the answer would be Dropbox. I think that uh, Dropbox is just a a game-changing app and not just an app, but end-to-end cross-platform experience um, that is uh, really making things easier and has a lot more coming. And your guilty pleasure apps, gentlemen. Russ, you first. Well, I was thinking probably any of the games. Every, every time I catch myself playing a game on my phone, I always think, oh, I probably should be doing something more productive. But yeah, out of all the games, Monument Valley, probably my favourite game. And what about you, Chris? Gosh, I, my son loves to play with plants and zombies, so that would be his guilty pleasure app on my phone. <laughs> uh, a final question for both of you. What would be your top tips right now for people who think they've got a good idea that they want to turn into an app? I think the most important thing is, is is just to start talking to people about the idea, getting that initial feedback, developing it, and just getting all that real-world feedback, trying to think about how you can make it the best it could possibly be. I think you only really get that when you actually say it out loud as well. There's something really powerful in that, just having to sit in front of someone and say, this is what I'm thinking about. Definitely got a lot from that at the start. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I think not trying to avoid starting from the idea of I'm going to create an app, um, but really starting more from what's an interesting problem to solve. What is something that impacts many people and really has significant financial impact on their lives or the companies that are touching their lives and something that would really be helpful for people and how can we build a a business around that and then finally how can we build a great simple mobile app uh, to make that interaction experience uh, delightful. A huge thank you to my guests today, Russ Tannen and Chris Barton. The Voom podcast is a PixU production for Virgin Media Business. Join us again in two weeks for the next edition. More conversation between entrepreneurs and bona fide business experts. If you enjoyed this, you can also tune in to the Virgin podcast with Dominic Frisbee. To listen and download, just search for that on iTunes or head over to virgin.com. For now, from me, Nikki Beatty, and the Voom team, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.